The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Mueller spoke. Did Congress understand? This is Thursday, May 30th, 2019. Thank you for supporting independent news by patronizing my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. When Special Prosecutor Leon Jaworski completed his Watergate investigation, he wrote a memoir. In it, he told of his transition from Nixon's supporter to a citizen who saw Nixon as sleazy, greedy, and vindictive. After Special Counsel Lawrence Walsh wrapped up his investigation of the Iran-Contra scandal of the George H.W. Bush administration, he wrote a book telling of the mistakes he'd made and the obstruction he'd encountered. After Special Counsel Ken Starr finished his investigation of Bill Clinton's intern scandal, Starr wrote about it in detail in his book Contempt and made no secret of his feelings about the Clintons. Robert S. Mueller III doesn't want to be like those guys. Sources close to Mueller warned us he wants his report to speak for itself. Only it doesn't. Instead, others have been speaking for it, and some of them are lying, which left open the question, where's Mueller? Why hasn't he answered the unanswered questions and explained the unexplained? And then yesterday it happened. Robert Mueller finally spoke. And it was better hearing it from him and seeing him say it than reading the report that still hasn't been read by so many in Washington who should read it. It was one thing to throw a blotchy 448-page report into our laps. It was another to hear it summed up by the man who wrote it in his own words. It was one thing to hear it misleadingly summed up two weeks ago by William Barr, but another to hear it more clearly and accurately from the man who actually wrote it. It didn't help that Mueller, unlike Jaworski and Walsh and Starr, never once used the word guilty, claiming he's not allowed to use that word. But what Mueller said in his public statement yesterday was crystal clear. If you speak Mullerese. What Mueller said in his extremely cautious, straight and narrow way was that Russia had attacked a U.S. election, that the president had obstructed the investigation into that attack, and that now it's up to Congress to act. In fact, he said it deserves the attention of every American. He called the attack of paramount importance and said obstructing the investigation of it, quote, strikes at the core of the government's efforts to find the truth and to hold wrongdoers accountable. He said he'd found insufficient evidence to accuse the Trump campaign of conspiring with Russia, although his report outlines the eagerness of the campaign to accept help from that hostile foreign government. In his straight and narrow way, Mueller was saying that the Russia investigation was not a hoax, as the president has claimed, and that Attorney General William Barr had also lied to the public in saying there was insufficient evidence to show obstruction of justice. But Mueller emphasized that just because it was not in his authority, not an option to prosecute obstruction, he found ample evidence of it. If we had confidence the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so, said Mueller during his uncomfortable nine minutes in front of the cameras. Mueller also hinted there's enough evidence that Trump could be charged criminally the minute he leaves office. But Mueller stressed that the Constitution leaves it to Congress to prosecute a president and that the Justice Department that employed him had a policy against indicting a sitting president. And with his two years' work done, Robert S. Mueller III resigned from the Justice Department and said his work had spoken for itself to those who'd bothered to read it. He made it very clear he didn't want to testify for Congress and that it would all be very boring since he'd have no intention of saying anything beyond what's already in his 448-page report for those who'd bothered to read it. I hope and expect, said Mueller, this will be the only time I will speak to you in this matter. The report, he said, is my testimony. But it didn't help that Mueller, unlike Jaworski and Walsh and Starr, never once used the word guilty, claiming he's not allowed to use that word. It didn't help that Mueller had waited two months to speak, allowing his report to be twisted and mischaracterized. So Democrats say they still plan to have Mueller up to the hill, arguing, to quote one, seeing the movie is different than reading the book, believing it's the only way to get the story out to the American people. They say they may have to subpoena Mueller to see that movie. But Mueller yesterday was, translated from the Mullerese, telling Congress to read the damned report and get to work. And by work... He meant the other word he didn't use, impeachment. 
Just days before Mueller's statement, House Judiciary Chairman Gerald Nadler said Mueller was willing to make a public opening statement for Congress, but wanted the question and answer session to be private. Nadler assured us the transcript of Mueller's testimony would be made public. Clips of Republican lawmakers asking questions simply for dramatic effect would never make their way onto the Internet or onto the news. Stunt questions don't play as well in print as they do in video, which is a better fit for Mueller's just-the-facts M.O. But again, Mueller has thrown down the impeachment gauntlet. Will Congress pick it up? Most of the Democratic presidential candidates are urging impeachment, including those who serve in Congress. And now nearly 50 congressional Democrats have spoken out for impeachment and one Republican, giving Nancy Pelosi the bipartisan support she said she needs. Jerry Nadler, who would start the impeachment hearings and seems to favor them, responded to Mueller's statement by saying it falls to Congress to respond to the crimes, lies, and other wrongdoing of President Trump, and we will do so, adding, no one, not even the president, is above the law. Every member of Congress has taken an oath to uphold the Constitution. 74% of Americans want Mueller to testify. 74%. The percentage of voters calling for impeachment is on the rise again, too. Nancy Pelosi, meanwhile, is refusing to budge, saying there must be more investigation before impeachment, even though the impeachment process begins with investigation by the House. Pelosi is still resisting impeachment, more fearful of losing the 2020 election than how history might judge her. But she cannot hold back the hands of the clock much longer. We will see more of the Mueller report tomorrow when, under orders from a federal judge, the parts concerning former Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn will be unredacted. The judge is also demanding the release of audio recordings of Flynn chatting with a former Russian ambassador and a voicemail in which one of Trump's lawyers invites Flynn's loyalty to the president just as Flynn is about to cooperate with Mueller. In those tapes and behind those redactions, we're expected to see hard confirmation that Flynn... His assistant, K.T. McFarland, former White House spokesman Sean Spicer, and Vice President Mike Pence have all lied about Flynn's contacts with Russia and about what they knew and when. So tomorrow, we hear those recordings and see what's behind those Mike Flynn-related redactions, unless Attorney General William Barr tries to stop the release of that material. He has tried in multiple ways to keep what's redacted behind the black ink. In the meantime, Trump has taken to governing by decree, making declarations like a king, not as an advise and consent president. We saw it in February when he declared a national emergency so he could spend money usually only Congress can spend to build his wall. This past week, he again bypassed Congress in his executive decision to keep selling weapons to Saudi Arabia, even after it brutally murdered an American journalist. Michigan Congressman Justin Amash, a conservative Republican, has said it more clearly than any Democrat. Impeach this president. He, too, has thrown down the impeachment gauntlet. Country over party, Amash is telling Republicans and Democrats. Now under attack verbally and politically from Trump and his fellow Republicans, Amash is doubling down and it's paying off. In a town hall meeting Tuesday night in his staunchly conservative district, Amash got two standing ovations for his courageous stand, and he set an example for other Republicans and Democrats. Congress must reclaim its powers, Amash had tweeted, adding, when will the legislative branch stand up to the executive branch? Congress, he says, has a duty to keep the president in check. Waiting until 2020 to ditch this president grows more dangerous by the day, not just for our sources and our intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies and news-gathering organizations, but for our very form of government, complete with checks and balances, advise and consent, and co-equal branches of government. Congress isn't exactly holding up its end of the bargain. A Washington Post survey found that of the 92 lawmakers on the House and Senate Judiciary and Intelligence Committees, only 60 have read the entire redacted Mueller report. In addition, three others say they've read most of the report, all Democrats. Not surprisingly, the vast majority of those who've not read it are Republicans, even though they sit on the committees that will rely heavily on that report for their oversight work. Four lawmakers gave unclear answers about whether they've read the report. Three of them were Republicans. 
25 lawmakers didn't answer the question at all, 19 of them Republicans. Senate Intelligence Chairman Richard Burr has not read it. Neither have fellow Republicans Lindsey Graham, Devin Nunes, Tom Cotton, Mike Lee, Ben Sass, or Marco Rubio. But neither has Kamala Harris or Jim Himes on the Democratic side. Democrat Chris Coons says he got through most of it. And that's assuming the lawmakers who answered the survey answered honestly. If some did not, then Republican Justin Amash is right in asking, when will the legislative branch stand up to the executive branch? We may never know the answer, unless and until Congress finishes its homework. Many Democrats in Congress and Republican Justin Amash have read the Mueller report, but the vast majority of Republicans and even some Democrats have not. One Republican who hasn't read it will now challenge Amash in the upcoming primary for that congressional seat. Is there a remedy faster than impeachment? Over the past week, we've again heard various discussions of the 25th Amendment, as we have over the past year or so, but we've mostly brushed aside that talk since most of us believed it would require the majority of Trump's cabinet and his vice president to turn against him. But as it turns out, there is one other way to invoke the 25th Amendment that allows the removal of a president who's physically or mentally unable to execute the powers and duties of his presidency. That other way involves Congress, not the cabinet. And we were reminded of this other way this week as Trump repeated that he's an extremely stable genius, asking his advisors one by one to step to the cameras to say he had not lost his temper in a meeting the previous day, to say that he was calm the whole time. During his trip to Japan, the White House asked the Navy to hide the USS John McCain, which is docked there, so as not to upset him. In the end, the Navy refused that request. This other way to more quickly remove a president, tucked away in Section 4 of the 25th Amendment, mentions the VP plus cabinet option, but offers an alternative, quote, or of other such body as Congress may by law provide. In other words, Congress needs only to set up a 25th Amendment panel that includes independent doctors and mental health experts or just set up its own 25th Amendment committee without doctors. The committee or panel would have to send a letter to the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and the Senate President Pro Tem, Chuck Grassley, declaring the president unfit, but it would require no action on their parts. It's even up to Congress to choose a definition for unfit. Releasing classified information, as Trump and Barr are preparing to do, might fit that definition. But it would still take a majority vote in both houses of Congress to remove the president, and that remains a long shot with Senate Republicans still clinging to Trump. And a president can veto a 25th Amendment vote. And for now, Congress does not have the supermajority it needs to override that veto, at least not yet. But as 1974 taught us, even that can change when a president becomes a political liability. One way to deflect and distract from questions about your own mental health is to question the mental health of others. The counterattack from Trump land sets its sights on Nancy Pelosi. On the Fox Business Network, Lou Dobbs was showing a video edited to string together a series of natural stammers from a Pelosi news conference making it appear she has difficulty speaking and raising a fake question about her fitness. Both Trump and his lawyer Rudy Giuliani retweeted the video and questioned Pelosi's mental state. Giuliani deleted his tweet after learning it was fake evidence. Trump, however, not only left up the retweet, he pinned it to the top of his page, quoting someone he'd heard on Fox News questioning Pelosi's mental fitness. On Twitter, meanwhile, someone had posted a video of Pelosi slurring her words like a drunk or a stroke victim. There's a reason for the slurring. The video had been doctored, slowed to 75% of the actual speed, stretching Pelosi's words. Reality-based Americans fought back, retweeting the phony video alongside the original in which Pelosi appears sound and sane. Trump and his supporters, including, of course, Fox News, were spreading the deception to try to distract from the focus on the mental health of the American president. And they all got some help from Facebook, where the altered Pelosi video had also spread to more than two and a half million sets of eyes. YouTube had pulled the video, but Facebook and others left it up. 
Facebook even admitted it knows the video is fake but refused to take it down. Facebook claimed it's not its job to distinguish real from fake, saying in a statement, we think it's important for people to make their own informed decisions. Facebook says it has dramatically reduced the distribution of the fake Pelosi video and has tagged it with a fact-check icon, but still hasn't removed it. With the caption, what is wrong with Nancy Pelosi, it's been shared more than 50,000 times and many Americans now accept it as truth. As one Facebooker put it, why is she not arrested for being drunk while conducting federal business? Between Trump and Fox and social media, welcome to the age of disinformation. Welcome to the age of willful ignorance. The United States is preparing to prosecute WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange for publishing government secrets by charging him with violations of the Espionage Act. It's a future bit of history that sets off waves in multiple directions. For one thing, it opens the door to prosecuting journalists who publish government secrets, infringing on our free press and contradicting a 1971 Supreme Court ruling that protected the journalists who published the so-called Pentagon Papers, which led to the end of the Vietnam War. Julian Assange has proven he is not an ethical journalist. He's viewed by most as a villain for endangering intelligence sources and more. Ethical journalists don't publish the names of intelligence sources and don't endanger lives as Assange did with the help of former Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning. And because Assange is villainous, his case is the perfect avenue for going after the press, as Trump calls it, the enemy of the people. Lumping Assange into the same basket as national hero Daniel Ellsberg will make the path much smoother for silencing the free press at a time when journalism's popularity is already wounded. And as if this story weren't terrifying enough, that's not the only noteworthy thing about the prosecution of Julian Assange. Namely, the hypocrisy. Because now, William Barr, a man who has acted more as a personal defense lawyer for Trump than he has as the nation's attorney general, has been given presidential permission to do exactly what Assange did without fear of the punishment Assange is facing. Barr has permission to release state secrets while Assange is charged with espionage for doing the same. It was last July when the current president first toyed with the idea of releasing classified secrets. That's when he gave Republican Congressman Devin Nunes permission to publish classified material from the FBI's Russia investigation, selectively, of course stuff that would bolster Trump's ad nauseum claim of a witch hunt. Just yelling about it wasn't enough, even for Trump. He needed exonerating evidence, or at least evidence that would damage and discredit the people investigating his alleged malfeasance. But that evidence was scarce, so he and Congressman Nunes set out to find some. They were unsuccessful. But they did manage to expose an American citizen as an intelligence source in the process, they did succeed at disproving their own claim that the Russia probe was launched by the Steele dossier. That was the first time Trump favored releasing classified documents, but a month later he was back at it. In August of last year, he threatened to release more classified documents to try to prove his innocence. Back then, with the Justice Department in the hands of Jeff Sessions, officials talked down the president, warning him he'd be endangering national security. So he backed off. But now, Jeff Sessions is gone. And William Barr has the job. The same William Barr who agrees with Trump that his 2016 campaign was the target of spying and who defends Trump's claims of a witch hunt. This is the guy who will now investigate the origins and conduct of the Russia probe, a man who has already made up his mind. With his new favorite lawyer on the case, Trump hopes to get some carefully selected evidence that the Mueller investigation was, as he's called it, treason and an attempted coup. Like many Americans, Trump does not know that the crime of treason can only be committed when providing aid and comfort to a foreign enemy during a declared war and is punishable by death. But it's a very emotional word. So Trump and many other Americans have seized upon it in this age of willful ignorance. Just hours after ignorantly claiming treason, Trump used the powers of his office to grant William Barr access to all the secrets of the CIA and all the secrets of the country's 15 other intelligence agencies to find that exonerating evidence. And with the Mueller report, Barr has the authority to release what he wishes, to hide what he wishes, and to put his own spin on all of it. If it goes anything like Barr's handling of the Mueller report, the American people can already expect to be misled Barr can be expected to release the stuff that makes the president's case, to hide the rest, 
and to again tell us incorrectly what it means, another set of lies to be repeated endlessly by Fox News. And without the prosecution Assange and every ethical journalist now faces. It's a three-pronged attack against the perception that Trump colluded with Russia, against the free press, and again against the U.S. intelligence community and law enforcement. The Barr investigation has the potential to not only destroy the reputations and credibility of our intelligence and law enforcement institutions, it has the potential to destroy their ability to do their jobs. Exposing sources is the very point of the Barr investigation, and as that occurs, intelligence sources will dry up, fearful they too will be exposed and perhaps killed for talking. Allies would be far less sharing of their intelligence, fearful their sources would also be exposed. Adding salt to that wound, Trump's directed Barr to carry his investigation into our connections with Australia and Great Britain. A tip from an Australian ambassador was the first indication Russia was infiltrating our politics. Our allies have likely clammed up quite a bit already, and they're angry that their role in the Russia probe has already been exposed. Another danger of the Barr probe? Exposing the methods of intelligence and law enforcement tips off the bad guys to help them work around those methods. No one would believe the agencies anymore. An investigative journalist would be intimidated against going after the truth. Trump is using our Justice Department and his Attorney General as tools against his political enemies, as weapons. And keep your eyes on this. Trump's CIA Director Gina Haspel and National Intelligence Director Dan Coats are now in a tough spot. Stand with their colleagues against providing these classified papers or be fired or just quit or keep the boss happy and turn national intelligence data into a political weapon. Data Trump could use to go after the people he's accused of treason or whatever the correct word is. Welcome to the age of willful ignorance. And that brings us to the subject of abortion, where disinformation also plays an oversized role. With most evangelical voters and many Republican lawmakers unburdened by facts, the big issue of the 2020 election might be a little less about Trump and a little more about abortion. It matters not to those voters that the late-term abortions they keep hearing about account for barely over 1% of the abortions performed in this country, and yet both sides are mightily fired up. Tomorrow, Missouri is poised to be the first state since Roe v. Wade to totally ban abortion. The last remaining abortion clinic in Missouri is due to close tomorrow. Last night, Louisiana became the latest state to ban abortions after six weeks, joining its neighbors in Arkansas and the rest of the Deep South in cracking down on a constitutional right. In the meantime, the attempted overthrow of the Supreme Court decision that legalized abortion is meandering through state houses and courtrooms on its way back to the Supreme Court, a very conservative Supreme Court this time. Trump had promised to get Roe v. Wade overturned by appointing conservative judges, and he's keeping that promise. That paved the way for Republican-held state legislatures to audaciously outlaw abortion. In the case of the Alabama and Missouri laws, not even for cases of rape or incest, as if that were some kind of reasonable criteria. Republicans across the country were passing state laws against abortion, even after getting trounced by women voters in November's midterm elections. Women voting last fall favored Democrats by 19%, and Republicans are now ensuring that that or worse will happen to them again. There have been hundreds of demonstrations in the wake of these new state laws with tens of thousands of people turning out. There's an indication they'll turn out again for the 2020 election as both sides throw fuel on a fire that had once shrunk to an ember as states continue to chip away and now even ban all abortions. So for now, the courts it is. In this past week, a federal judge blocked Mississippi's new law that bans abortions after six weeks before many women even know they're pregnant. It's the same judge who struck down Mississippi's 15-week law last year. When the case landed on his bench this week, Judge Carlton Reeves said, Here we go again. His order temporarily blocking the new Mississippi law criticized state lawmakers for doubling down on what he'd already struck down. It smacks of defiance of this court, said the judge. Judges don't like defiance. In fact, the law doesn't allow it. These fights continue in dozens of states from coast to coast. 
Simultaneously, there's been an alarming rise in vandalism and burglary at abortion clinics in the U.S. Picket lines surround clinics every day, and there have been more cases of trespassing, blocking entrances, and stalking. The number of assault and battery cases at clinics is also up. The Washington Post reports that women are preparing for the worst, developing their own quiet network for women seeking abortions. It's called the Auntie Network, or the Jane Collective, a whisper network on social media in which women in states where abortion is safe and legal reach out to women in states that have banned it. Someone in Chicago using the name Cindy offered women in other states her phone number via private message, whereupon they'd be invited to come visit Navy Pier, which in this case would be code for an abortion clinic. Discretion and secrecy are important since some states want to jail women who cross state lines to get an abortion. But it is still legal to cross state lines to see Chicago's Navy Pier or the Mall of America or the Liberty Bell. You get the idea. An offer of, I'd love to send you a birthday card, can actually mean I will send you birth control pills or a pregnancy test or a Plan B pill. Women are preparing for the possibility that Roe will be overturned and abortion outlawed again driving it again underground. Democrats are stepping up where they can to protect women's rights to choose in Illinois, Vermont, Massachusetts, and other states. And the state Supreme Court in Kansas has ensured that women will retain their right to abortion under that state's constitution. But the Supreme Court in Washington, stocked with conservatives, made another surprise decision Tuesday, rejecting a case from a so-called Christian group that would have overturned Pennsylvania's decision to allow transgender public school students to use restrooms and locker rooms that suit their gender identities. One week earlier, the Trump administration had proposed new Housing and Urban Development Department policy allowing homeless shelters to deny access to transgender citizens. A 2015 survey found that 70% of the transgender people who were kicked out of homeless shelters were kicked out for being transgender. The Trump administration appears to be trying to stock the federal courts with judges who have no objection to school segregation, another issue settled decades ago. For months now, Democratic Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal has been asking these Trump judicial nominees one by one if they support the Supreme Court's Brown versus Board of Education decision that ordered desegregated schools. Sometimes he asks them about Roe versus Wade. More than two dozen of Trump's nominees have declined to answer these questions as if they were all obeying the same commander. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, meanwhile, says he would confirm a Trump nominee to the Supreme Court in 2020, even though it's an election year, even though he had refused to do the same in Obama's final year, saying it should be left up to the voters. For McConnell, it's not about avoiding hypocrisy. It's always been about winning party over country. And in Florida, the Republican legislature is once again mangling the will of the voters by adding new rules to the state's new voter-supported amendment that gives felons who've done their time the right to vote. Florida Republicans have now added a caveat to that. People convicted of felonies can vote after they've paid any outstanding court fines, fees, and court-ordered restitution. In other words, pay or don't vote. In other words, it's a return of that Southern tradition, the poll tax, that discriminates against poor whites and minorities. In other words, people more likely to vote Democratic. It's a rule voters did not have in mind when about two-thirds of them embraced what would have been the biggest expansion of voting eligibility in the nation since the civil rights era of the 1960s. Meanwhile, this president keeps trying and failing at what he's called his greatest political strength, immigration. A federal judge has blocked for now Trump's plans to spend a billion in military money on building his wall. In his ruling, the judge said to, quote, simply find a way to spend those funds without Congress does not square with fundamental separation of powers. The judge even discussed Trump's so-called national emergency at the southern border and how a president could only spend money on a declared emergency if the emergency involves unforeseen events. The judge pointed out that Trump had been using the word emergency for nearly a year before actually invoking one, which makes Trump's emergency far from unforeseen. That, said the judge, cannot be logically squared. 
But the judge's ruling only affects part of the wall and only part of the military money that Trump plans to spend on it. The president called the judge another activist Obama judge as if somehow Obama judges should just be ignored. And Kim Jong-un has been misbehaving again, firing off short-range missiles that sent South Korean and Japanese people into shelters along with the thousands of members of the U.S. military. Trump's national security advisor then said the right thing, even if it may have been for the wrong reason. John Bolton declared to reporters on Saturday that North Korea had, without a doubt, violated U.N. Security Council resolutions with those missile tests. He's right, of course, but no U.S. official has ever said such a thing out loud in this administration. But then Bolton is proudly hawkish on war, especially as it concerns North Korea, Iran, and Venezuela. The very next day, Trump was tweeting that they were just, quote, small weapons, which disturbed some of my people, but not me. I have confidence, he wrote, that Chairman Kim will keep his promise to me. Trump may remember saying he, quote, fell in love with the dictator of North Korea and the, quote, beautiful letters he got from Kim. And all of this happened as Trump was on his way to Japan to meet its new emperor, play some golf, and present a sumo wrestling award. Not long after American troops in the region were taking cover from Kim's small weapons. Trump tweeted some more once he arrived in Japan, which just happens to agree with John Bolton that North Korea had violated UN resolutions with those small weapons. Perhaps he wants to get attention, said Trump about Kim's latest missile mischief. Speaking like a true leader, Trump told reporters later, perhaps he wants to get attention, perhaps not. Who knows? It doesn't matter. Perhaps because he's worried about the very real threat that Joe Biden and a few other Democratic contenders present to his re-election chances, the U.S. president misspelled Biden with an A instead of an E as he tweeted from Japan. Trump wrote that while they were still seeing each other, Chairman Kim had smiled when he called the former vice president Swamp Man a low IQ individual and worse. Trump wondered in his fevered tweet whether Kim was trying to send him a message, a signal, a sign. While on foreign soil, no less, Trump was slandering an American vice president and again flirting with a brutal dictator. For you kids or anyone else who needs reminding, this is not normal behavior for a president, or really anyone, not normal. And this sort of thing has never happened until now. And this is why so many Democratic and Republican leaders condemned the president's talk, especially a president representing our nation on foreign soil. Trump had a good time in Japan, by the way. Quoting him, I'm the guest of honor at the biggest event they've had in over 200 years. The event was to introduce a new emperor, which makes the emperor the guest of honor. But the president had a good time. He pulled us out of the six-nation Iran nuclear deal because he said it was a bad deal. What he didn't say was what would come next, what might be a better way to go besides stepping up sanctions again. What he did not say was that Iran was confirmed to be in full compliance with that nuclear deal. And what he has not said since is why no other nation has followed his lead in withdrawing from that important agreement. For lack of an actual policy on Iran, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and National Security Advisor John Bolton have threatened both Iran and our own allies who did not follow Trump out the door. There was talk of sending 1,500 American troops to the region. The Trump administration was rattling the sabers of war. They stopped at about the time he was off to Japan to again sing the praises of Kim Jong-un. We're not looking for regime change in Iran, Trump insisted, saying the U.S., quote, has a very good relationship with Iran. And Trump, despite the saber-rattling of recent weeks, opened the door for talks with Iran. But the president remains on the warpath at home, going over Congress's head again to keep selling U.S. military-grade weapons to the murderous regime of Saudi Arabia, Republicans are as angry as Democrats as they see the presidency reaching for powers reserved for Congress. And this is not occurring in a vacuum. The weapons are for fighting Iran. I've given Bob Seska the week off from his duties here as he recharges between his own shows. Bob and I reunite on Tuesday for another edition of The Bob Seska Show at bobseska.com. 
And now three important developments affecting our elections. Last week, the Supreme Court told Ohio and Michigan they don't have to redraw their gerrymandered electoral maps after all. Lower courts had ordered the maps redrawn, but the high courts made it clear it doesn't think judges should play a role in shaping congressional districts. Federal courts in five states have struck down these maps, but they're getting no backup from the Supreme Court in Washington. In Nevada, meanwhile, the state Senate has voted to make theirs the latest state to find a workaround for the Electoral College that's elected Republican presidents in recent years over the candidates who got the most votes. Nevada will now require its Electoral College members to vote for the candidate who got the most votes nationally, not just in Nevada. Fourteen states and the District of Columbia have now all found ways to skirt the Electoral College system as we have known it. And the acting Secretary of State in Texas has been forced to resign after leading a clumsy voter purge that questioned the eligibility of 100,000 Texas voters. The effort to weed out non-citizens swept up thousands of actual citizens in the process using methods condemned by voter rights groups and a federal judge. Republican David Whiteley, now resigning in disgrace, was appointed by the state's Republican Governor Greg Abbott, who once employed Whiteley as a gubernatorial aide. The U.S. economy is in the midst of what may be its longest stretch of growth ever. That fact alone would be enough to get almost any president reelected. But that fact does not stand alone. New figures from the Federal Reserve show that nearly 4 in 10 of us don't have enough cash to buy a refrigerator or a set of tires for the car without skipping some other monthly payment. And with our infrastructure weak, a lot of us may need new tires, no thanks to a business-savvy president whose declared expertise is construction. 17% of us are missing at least one monthly payment each month already, even without an unusual expense. The numbers get higher as a person's skin gets darker. The percentage of month-to-monthers gets exponentially higher at lower education levels. About two-thirds of all Americans say they would not make it three months if they lost their jobs, even if they sold some of their possessions and borrowed money from banks, friends, and relatives. Meanwhile, we are told the economy is expanding. Quoting auto mechanic David Moore of D&D Automotive in Las Cruces, New Mexico, it's not expanding for me, it's getting worse. Moore tells the Washington Post he couldn't cover the $2,000 bill when he had to take his son to an ER last year. He sends the hospital 100 bucks a month in good faith. The U.S. economy is in the midst of what may be its longest growth spurt ever. And while that might normally be good news for a president running for re-election, it might not be this time. The tax cut from Trump and the Republicans hasn't helped either. Studies continuing to show it benefits only the rich. Quoting the Fed's report, economic expansion and low unemployment rates did little to narrow the persistent economic disparities by race, education, and geography. A rocket-powered skateboard, new UFO videos from Navy pilots, and another arc, another flood, in the final segment after this. Thank you so much for using the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com to get your own personal copy of the Mueller Report and all the other great books written about our times. And please do all your shopping there year-round at home, school, and work. Shopping through my Amazon link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening. Just go to buzzburbank.com and click the Amazon logo. You'll land on your usual Amazon page, which you can then bookmark to replace your old bookmark. Once you've done that, I get a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make, so it really does help power this free weekly report. On your desktop browser, that Amazon logo is in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just under the title, Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Now, if you choose not to use my Amazon link, then please do support this free and independent reporting through my PayPal donate button. Thank you for all of these things and for spreading the word about this effort. As record flooding and a record number of tornadoes swept through the nation's midsection, the House has failed twice in the past week to approve $19 billion in disaster relief for wildfire, flood, and tornado victims. With most lawmakers out of town for the Memorial Day break, it was, in each failed vote, one lone Republican who stood in the way. In the first vote on Friday, the obstructor was Republican Congressman Chip Roy of Texas. He objected to the lack of money for the humanitarian crisis at the southern border. It should be noted the bill does include $900 million for Puerto Rico, 
to which he may have also objected. On Tuesday of this week, another vote and another Republican obstructor, this time Congressman Thomas Massey of Kentucky. Massey objected to the fact that all the other lawmakers were out of town. He wanted the relief money vote to wait for another week, even though that's unnecessary in what's called unanimous consent. And so, with the objections of one Republican after another, disaster relief for millions will also have to wait, while the tornadoes and floodwaters and flames continue to swirl and destroy. The Trump administration, meanwhile, is preparing to lay off more than a 1,000 federal workers as it pulls out of the U.S. Forest Service Job Corps program. It's the biggest job cut in 10 years for the federal government, and it puts an end to training disadvantaged young people to fight fires and to clear the brush that helps those fires spread. The Job Corps Civilian Conservation Centers will close in Montana, Wisconsin, Arkansas, Virginia, Washington State, Kentucky, North Carolina, and Oregon. That means the jobs will be lost in Trump country mostly states that voted for Trump and remain Republican. They're the ones being punished. No longer will they get this extra protection. No longer will 3,000 disadvantaged kids a year find purpose in service. 16 of the Job Corps centers will be sold to private companies or to the states in which they're located. The collapsing of the program begins at the end of summer while this year's wildfires are still underway. This is not setting well, with the Republican lawmakers who represent the people in those Republican states, and they're pushing back. Trump, meanwhile, is pushing forward with his agenda of erasing our environmental protection rules, pulling the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Accord, promoting the burning of more climate-damaging fossil fuels, and laughing at the science. And now he's not just laughing, he's silencing the science. The New York Times reported this week the White House will roll back our biggest efforts to cut greenhouse gas emissions, but this administration is also cutting its long-range forecasts. Instead of projecting our destruction track through the end of the century, the forecast will now only look at the next 20 years. That is convenient if you're trying to bury the truth, which scientists say is on the other side of that 20-year mark when things start to get much more catastrophic than what we are already witnessing. Just beyond 20 years is when cities will begin to disappear under the rising sea, not to mention the droughts and crop failures and food shortages and fiercer storms. Government scientists, however, are also being ordered to stop including worst-case scenarios in their reports and to use numbers from the past for their projections. Trump's climate review panel is now headed by a 79-year-old former physicist at Princeton who's now a climate change denier who has compared the demonization of carbon dioxide to the demonization of Hitler. Vice President Mike Pence recently expressed his excitement about how the melting Arctic ice cap is opening up new shipping lanes and new waters for fishing and drilling for gold and for more fossil fuels to burn. He sees it as a new land of opportunity. Northward ho! Washington Post opinion writer Paul Waldman said it best. Imagine the government decided to provide subsidies to tobacco companies, encouraged people to take up smoking, then instructed the National Institutes of Health to shut down its cancer research and cease all mentions of the word cancer. That, writes Waldman, is pretty much what the Trump administration is doing on climate. Adding, we're all going to pay the price. You may also pay a price for using the weed killer Roundup. The mist can be absorbed through your eyes, your nose, your mouth, and your skin. And when it leaches into the soil and the groundwater beneath it, it gets into us through our food and water. And a new study says Roundup may be linked to liver disease. Specifically, it's the glyphosate in Roundup, which also happens to be the chemical that makes it so effective against weeds. The research continues at the University of San Diego. The more liver disease they find, the more glyphosate they find. Earlier this month, a jury in California awarded millions of dollars in damages to a couple who said their long-term exposure to Roundup gave them non-Hodgkin lymphoma. They were diagnosed just days after the EPA had published a conclusion that glyphosate poses no risk to public health. Glyphosate is the most widely used herbicide in the U.S. It was patented by Monsanto, which is now owned by aspirin maker Bayer. Other weed update... North Dakota has quietly decriminalized marijuana, 
taking jail off the table for folks caught with a half ounce or less. Penalties for bigger amounts were also reduced. North Dakota's Republican governor signed the bill without fanfare, and the bill had only narrowly passed the Republican legislature. In fact, the governor signed it in the midst of signing more than 50 bills passed in the state's latest legislative session so no one would notice. The new law goes into effect August 1st. When Jeopardy! host Alex Trebek announced he had stage 4 pancreatic cancer, word quickly spread that patients in his situation have only a 9% chance of survival after five years. The 78-year-old Trebek went ahead with the treatments and went ahead with the show, playing down his cancer as best he could. He now says he is in near remission, with tumors shrinking by more than 50%. Although he's played down the severity of his condition, Trebek says the chemo has hammered him with bouts of deep, deep sadness. The movies Black Panther and Avengers Endgame were both filmed in Georgia, but Disney CEO Bob Iger says the company may not be filming in Georgia anymore if it goes ahead with its abortion ban. Disney's live-action Aladdin is the top movie in theaters this week, taking in more than $86 million. The latest John Wick is second with nearly $25 million. Get your tickets right here by clicking the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. Nearly every day, from sometime in the summer of 2014 to March of 2015, Navy pilots were reporting UFOs nearly every day for the better part of a year. The pilots say they saw no engine on the craft, no exhaust, as they watched them jump to 30,000 feet at hypersonic speeds. One pilot nearly collided with one of the objects and filed a mishap report. Some of the objects were caught on video by the pilot's automated target tracking technology. One video shows an object speeding just above the ocean's waves. There were so many sightings, the Navy put out new classified guidance on how to report UFOs earlier this year. And now the Navy has also released some of those videos. Some show what appears to be a child's toy top or the kind of flying saucer we've seen in old science fiction movies. Other videos show what appears to be a giant flying tic-tac about the size of a commercial jetliner. That's what two Navy fighter pilots spotted off the coast of San Diego back in 2004. The number of sightings has actually increased with the arrival of new and more sophisticated radar for our military, more sophisticated than the 1980s model the Navy had been using. One pilot says his radar told him there was an object a 1,000 feet directly overhead, and it showed up on the infrared, but he couldn't actually see it. In 2014, a pilot and his wingman were flying about 100 feet apart just off Virginia Beach when something flew through the narrow space between them. The pilot says it looked like a sphere with a cube inside. Some of the sightings were off the coast of the Florida Panhandle until the pilot's home ship, the USS Roosevelt, headed for the Persian Gulf to fight ISIS, and the objects disappeared. Back on Earth, there's still a lighter side, Lady Luck certainly smiled upon a 48-year-old man in Battle Creek, Michigan. His lucky streak began on Sunday when he got a little bonus at work. He and his wife decided to celebrate that day with a trip to a local casino where he won another $300. On the way to the casino, he bought a couple of scratch-off tickets that won him an additional $300,000. That Michigan man was much luckier than the people of Pullman, Washington after this week's highway spill of the week. The local paper says boxes of bees fell off a truck owned by Washington State University, which studies and breeds bees. The responding officer reported thousands of bees swarming around the crash site and that university entomologists were putting on their protective gear to pick up the bees and put them in boxes. The bee spill shut down commuters that morning through the entire rush hour and, of course, created quite a buzz. Another accident waiting to happen might be the effort of a high school student in Charlottesville, Virginia, to build a rocket-powered skateboard. And not just any rocket-powered skateboard, but one he hopes will shatter the record in the Guinness Book with the help of a miniature jet engine. The boy's already gotten it up to 60 miles an hour. What could possibly go wrong? The Guinness record for the longest time planking for a woman goes to Dana Glowacka, a yoga instructor in Montreal. She was able to hold the plank position for four hours and 20 minutes. 
That breaks the old record of three hours, 30 minutes, but is well short of the male record of eight hours and one minute. 42-year-old Nate Roman was returning to his home in Marlborough, Massachusetts with his five-year-old son when the boy noticed the back door was open. It was terrifying, said Nate, to know someone was in your house. The first clue of what had transpired in their absence was the distinct aroma in the air of house cleaning chemicals. The house had, in fact, been thoroughly cleaned by the home invader and their accomplices. And then another clue. The ends of the toilet paper rolls folded into attractive flower sculptures. The origami helped Nate finally realize that the people who had entered his home were with a cleaning service. And, he says, judging from the quality of their work, a really good one. And finally, it did not rain for 40 days and 40 nights. It rained for 40 inches. And that proved too much for the multi-million dollar Noah's Ark theme park in northern Kentucky, Ark Adventure. It cost a grown-up 48 bucks to get into the park, which opened in 2016 with the help of about $62 million in junk bonds. Perhaps you've heard of it with its five-story high replica of the Old Testament Ark, its founder believing the story of the Great Flood to be literal history. That, he says, is how we got to Grand Canyon, and that life on this planet only survived, including the Noah who, as he approached the age of 600, spent 70 of his later years building a very large boat. He also believes that dinosaurs and man roamed the earth at the same time. They didn't. You have to sign a document declaring homosexuality a sin in order to work at Ark Adventure and that you are a church-going Christian. The flooding from that 40 inches of rain in 2017 did about a million dollars damage to the park with the Ark. Quoting one of the inscriptions at one of the park's attractions, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. The Ark Park is now suing its insurance company for $1 million for not covering the damage from what could only be described as an act of God. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for shopping my sponsors and the PayPal button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comments. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.